Okay, we are still on chapter four, John. We, we got through the woman, the Samaritan woman, but we're ready to read 43 to 54. Uh, Peter, why don't you read that passage for us, please? 43 through 54. <clears throat> oh, Jesus heals the official's son. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. I would consider a sign his reading the heart of the woman, the Samaritan woman, and telling her past. But a sign in the New Testament meant a miracle. So what does this story teach you about salvation, Tony? God. It requires trust. It seems from our part, trust that He can save us. Um, because the nobleman trusted um, Jesus, trusted that He would heal his son. He doesn't at first, does he? Yeah, because verse 48 says, Jesus said, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. And that's that's interesting. It says you people. What version is that? NIV. NIV. The reason it says you people is because the you is plural. It's not singular. He's not addressing the royal the, official, the royal official right. directly. He's addressing the whole multitude. Like, okay, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe, so I'm going to heal the son. It's interesting. I, I have not read the, the Greek here, um, but that could be the only plausible reason why the NIV translates it the way they do. Yeah, for our language. So, because we don't, we don't differentiate between you plural and you singular. Yeah. 
the Geneva, verse 48 says, Then Jesus said unto him, Well, now you're going to force me to get my Greek New Testament. <laughs> no, 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 let's go. Look at the words of God. Come on. <laughs> in, the, in the NASB, it says, You people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but it's so Jesus said to him. I know, right? It's like funny. You read like a verse. And then, like, you compare a whole bunch of different versions. You know, but, they, but there's something so special in comparing translation to yes. translation from translation. It's like you get something that you yes. have never gotten before. So true. <laughs> okay, really awesome. Especially that. And especially that, King James. And the, the Geneva. And, the, and um, using the old dictionaries. Oh. Um, you, you that's get, interesting. You, yeah, you get, that's why old books are good. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Even if they're only in English. <laughs> yeah, King James Version says, Then Jesus said unto him. Interesting. But then the words it says after that is you people. Right? Well, in here it said, Then Jesus said unto him, Except ye. Ye is which, plural. Which could be. Ye is plural. Ye is plural in Old English. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Okay, so that's verse 48? Yes. Yes. 448. Sorry, we got in five. Okay. Just do the little path now. <laughs> Here we go. I have translated this a very long time ago. This is this is the version I used here at PUC as a student in 1975, 76. Uh, what, what is it? It's the Greek New Testament. But uh, this is a very old version of it. Okay, so um, Jesus said unto him, um, actually, pros, he said before him. Could be translated said before him rather than said to him. Because pros auton, auton is accusative. Pros, pros really means before. So unless you you may see signs and wonders, it is plural. Uh, you may not believe. So he could be addressing the official as a representative of all the officials in, in Judaism. He could be addressing the people, and the official is representing the people. That's very interesting. I could go on more into the grammar, but well refrain. <laughs> Some of the evidence suggests that this uh, royal official was an officer in Herod's service, um, which is kind of interesting also, because that may have affected his level of faith. We don't know, but I certainly find it interesting. Especially since Herod mocked him. Yeah! So, so it, what is wrong with believing because of signs and wonders? It doesn't require faith. Yeah. It doesn't of what kind of faith? It doesn't require faith. It doesn't require faith. It's seeing is believing. Yeah. I know some people who wouldn't believe even if they saw signs and wonders. Well, even the Israelites, you yeah. know, I mean... Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I tell in uh, God and Human Suffering class, I tell a story of how... Because we talk about miracles for a day. Yeah, and I tell the story how uh, I was driving in the sector freeway between uh, Interstate 10 
and 215 east going to San Bernardino. And um, I saw a man standing with his back to the traffic. All the traffic was going one way. He was standing with his back to the traffic, waving his hands and jumping up and down. It was a very odd behavior. And so I started looking for his vehicle. I went there and there. And then suddenly, straight ahead, his vehicle was stopped. Pickup truck in the middle of the, in the lane that I was in. I had, I don't know, maybe 100 feet, 100, maybe more to stop. And I was going 60 miles an hour the flow of traffic and I knew that maybe and you know it's amazing how fast you can think in a split second yeah. <laughs> um, I knew that maybe if I slammed my brake I could stop in time but then I'd be a sitting duck for the next person who woke up to the fact that there was a vehicle stop in the road and so I decided to go into the other lane I didn't have time to look back to see if anybody was coming I just took the plunge and I hit the break, which was a mistake as I took that plunge because back in those days cars did not have anti-lock brakes and so my steering wheel locked totally immobile my car went right across that lane hit the curbs so hard that it took out equal sized chunks and then miraculously went over the edge of a 25-foot drop and turned. Don't ask me how it could turn, but it turned to hit to the nearest tree, which broke its fall, brought it back against the bank, and it went like this down the bank. And I didn't have my seatbelt on because seatbelts cut me across here. And um, so I was going this way in the car as it writhed down the hill. And I expected them to be prying me out with the jaws of life at the end of the day. <laughs> oh, <laughs> pong ball inside of me. Yeah. And um, the thing that was ironic is, as soon as that car, uh, that steering wheel locked, I, my impulse was to grab the steering wheel. If the car was out of control, I had no more control. Grab that steering wheel and turn it back in to the lane. And I remember distinctly, and, and you know I'm vertically challenged, I sit at the seat very close to the steering wheel. I have to, to reach the accelerator. I reached for the steering wheel and felt nothing but air in front of me. And if I had gotten that steering wheel, I probably wouldn't be here telling the story. Well, I told this to one particular class of God and human suffering because they were telling me they didn't believe that miracles were really miracles. And I told that story to try to convince them. They finally conceded, okay, well, there are miracles. Uh, <laughs> and so... Did it fall? Did it come up? No, no. There was no it steering was, wheel. It was just... It was taken air. Away. It was taken away. Was <laughs> For taken me, away. it was gone. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, I didn't think too much about it, but there was a student in my class apparently was really skeptical about my story. 
the next fall, we always take our seniors, and this student was a religion major, we always take our students to Albion for a weekend retreat at the beginning of the school year. So we were last, last fall, this was last fall, we were at Albion, and we decided to go in on into Fort Bragg and, and take one of the trails down to the beach. Well, it was it was terribly windy, and we ended up <laughs> deciding not to. But um, we did drive up there, and I was driving along in my car, following a, a van, following a van, you know, following a car, uh, and and we all came in together. And I found a parking spot, parallel parked, and. and got out, and the student who had been in God and Human Suffering class rushed up to me, and he said, Dr. Sheld, I believe you now. <laughs> you sit really close to the steering wheel. You really do. <laughs> so even if you see signs and wonders, you may not believe, right? You may try to argue them away or, or discountenance that. But... Um, what are signs and wonders for, if not for faith? We were reading uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's mm -hmm. story this morning, and how they're saying, you know, our God has the ability to, but even if he doesn't, it's okay. And it makes me think about that too, like God is, God was responding to that, to them, and like he could have not saved them. Like, they could have been martyrs. And that would have been the end of the story, and it still would have been an amazing story of faith. Mm -hmm. But he chose to have Jesus go in there, and then the king saw, and then like so, that was witnessed to other people too. So are signs and wonders for unbelievers or believers? Now my sign and wonder was, was practical. I had a mission to do. I was uh, just a few days, a few weeks after that accident, I got a call to teach at Hong Kong Adventist College. And I honestly believed, because every time I got in my car to go anywhere, I had close calls. And when the last close call I had before the accident, I was had, had gone shopping with a friend, and I brought her back, and I dropped her off at her home, and I was coming on the side street, I was in La Melinda, and this side street was parallel to Barton Road, which is the main road that goes through Little Melinda. And it used to be that College Street or College Avenue came up across Barton, went on up into the hills where there were homes. And I was at the base of those hills coming out. And uh, I was ready to turn left, and the light had turned so that everybody should be stopping, and that was a good time to go. And I started to turn left, and a car ran the red light, which is a very common thing at that particular intersection was, I mean, people have been killed because of people running a red light. And I barely had time to go straight. I couldn't turn the wheel and go left. I turned straight and went into a driveway and sat there with my heart pounding. And I remember thinking, someday I'm going to be in a really serious accident because I could see the momentum building. It seemed like every time I had a close call, it was worse than the close call before. And that was the worst. And the next time I drove my car, I was in that accident. Mm -hmm. And I really believed that, that Satan was contesting my right to go to Hong Kong. Um, he wanted to wipe me out, basically. Uh, and, and so God intervened in order to save me for that mission. 
And that's another amazing story of miracles, but we won't go there today. So sometimes I think God does save his children because he needs to use them. Yeah. It's just practical. And we're in a war, and, and Satan's overreached his boundaries. I, I sometimes think that one of the bases for when God can intervene and when he can't is when Satan overreaches boundaries that have been set for him. And the reason I talk about boundaries is because if you read the book of Job, Job <laughs> illustrates that God sets boundaries. Thus far and no farther shall your proud ways be stayed. And that's Job, Job 38. Um, but he, of course he sets, he sets boundaries for his Hasatan when Hasatan wants to go after Job. So if Satan oversteps his boundaries, then God says, okay, <laughs> you overstepped your boundaries, I'll intervene. So I, I think that sometimes plays out. In John 4, we're definitely dealing with unbelievers. Jesus says so. So signs and wonders are for the weak in faith, not for the strong in faith. And so many times we take miracles to mean, wow, we must have a lot of faith. That's how we, how we tend to, to look at miracles. Miracles, uh, the reason I said both is because um, when things happen, you know, I've had several things happen. And yet, yes, it's to help us to get through the time that we need it for, but it's also for us to be able to testify, this is real. Yeah, yeah. And, and, that's, and that's, again, for unbelievers. That's for the weak of, mm. weak of faith through our transmission of our own faith. What do you think of Gideon? Or, or, the, or the story of Abraham and the covenant. That strange torch and, and sensor moving through the body parts. Of that. That's because Abraham didn't really have quite enough faith, even though it says earlier he trusted God and God counted that as his righteousness. So I, I tend to see signs and wonders on a general principle for unbelievers, for the weak in faith. And therefore we shouldn't pat ourselves on the back. <laughs> when we have a miracle and say, wow, I must be a really good person, or, uh, <laughs> uh, or I must have a lot of faith. And we berate people who, who are hesitant to pray for miracles as, you don't have an, if you have enough faith, God is going to heal you. you know, you've heard, I mean, talk to Pastor Mark. He tells all kinds of stories about cases where pastors believed that if they prayed for a miracle, God would give it to them, and it didn't happen, and it was destructive to people's faith. Um, I think that is presumptuous and maybe arrogant to just assume that on our demand, God is going to give us miracles, or to assume that miracles are dependent on our faith. Jesus gave miracles to a lot of people who didn't believe. In my head, this is the, along the same line, but it's a question. Um, I know several people who say, if you speak the word, and you speak the word back to you know God or the Father or whoever, um, that that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to speak it back to Him, and we're supposed to, you know, and that's going to be. And to me, to me, that and that speaking the word and. and, and it's a borderline demanding God to do something that yeah. he may not want to do. That's, 
And will it or will it not line up with the will of God? That's what it all comes down to. Exactly. So this is like you think of you think of Ellen White's story, where she would go to people who were sick, take them by the hand, and say, "In the name of Jesus, I command you to be healed," and they would be whole. And she had a vision, which God said to her. I did not want to heal that person. I did it because you insisted. But the truth is that person is going, to not, uh, is going to abuse their privileges. They're not going to use their health wisely. And they're going to go back to the same lifestyle that caused them to get sick in the first place. And they're going to dishonor me. And so she, she never prayed that prayer again or never said those words again. She said, if it is your will, according to your will. Which people don't like. No, I always, when I do an anointing service, I, I must confess that's the hardest point in the anointing service is when I say, your will be done, and I can always kind of feel the difference in the room. Because, with, um, it sounded like when Ellen White prayed that prayer, that it's kind of along the lines of the puritanistic culture. Well, she it's true she was came out of the Methodist tradition, but the Methodist tradition took a little divide shortly after that incident. And the holiness movement began, Pentecostal holiness movement of the Methodist Church began. And that was a very take them by the hand and raise them up kind of movement. And I, I have some real questions about it because I have an ancestress who was a preacher for the holiness movement and who did that kind of thing, I think, and taught instant perfection and um, was rather spiritualistic. Her father was always close to her when she needed him after he died. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so I think, I think the important thing is if we are humble and connected, God can do whatever God needs to do. And, and if we're really selfless and, so, and not self-serving, not self, showing self-interest, but actually self, filled with self-sacrificing love, we will want what is best as God sees it. And we won't be trying to armrest him by some kind of misaligned faith that it really isn't trust. It's something different. It's presumption. So, so here's the continuum. On one extreme, you have presumption. The kind of presumption I heard at a week of prayer one time at a, a college very far from here, where the preacher was trying to tell the students that it, you could jump off a cliff and God would save you because you trust him, basically. And he told all the terrible, terrifying things and risks he took and needless things he did. And God saved him. And so therefore, you know, you can do anything. God will save you. I, after, after he was done, I would take my class and debrief. <laughs> and tell them the other side of that coin. I, I really think that, so we have this continuum of presumption on one side and doubt on the other extreme. Presumption is running where there's no, no reason 
to believe. Uh, it's running ahead of faith. It's taking leaps into the dark. Doubt is believing where there's evidence for faith. And the middle is faith or trust that is built upon evidence. That evidence always has to be where our faith is rooted, or we will go into doubt or go into presumption, depending on our personality type, I suspect. Uh, I won't say which personality type is which, but um, that's the continuum that we have to be aware of and recognize that faith is always evidence-centered. And signs aren't necessarily evidence. Why is that? Well, signs appeal to the senses. And, and senses can deceive. And also sensationalism, <laughs> uh, which is built on the word sense. Yeah. Really led by our senses instead of carefully evaluating evidence. Signs can be part of the evidence, but but basically they are they are something beyond evidence. I mean, they include evidence, but they're more than just evidence. Why else are signs not necessarily evidence? Besides the sensationalism, feeling to the senses. Who else can do signs and wonders? The devil. Who else can do signs and wonders besides the devil? People that are affiliated with. Okay, people that are affiliated with Zell, but apart, well, maybe they are affiliated with this one. Um, what about Hollywood? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, but that's media. That's not like you and I sitting here. I, I know that's some... media, but we are conditioned. Yes. We are being conditioned by Hollywood to accept signs and wonders. Absolutely. Desensitized. So we can't go by signs and wonders because there's, there's many powers that can perform those. Uh, signs and wonders by themselves are not adequate. Another interesting thing about this particular royal official <clears throat> is that it was enough for him that uh, he took Jesus at his word. And in after, his little, after that little rebuke, yeah, he went on to, okay. Right there at the end of verse 50, the NIV says, The man took Jesus at his word and departed. For and he didn't hurry home, as my understanding. He just loitered along the way. He just went. It's good enough for me. You know? What a lesson that we could do. Tell me, for today. tell me what it's evidence. enough that the Lord said so. Huh? What? <laughs> Don't tell he decide in a wonder? <laughs> tell, tell me, though, Satan can make claims, too. So what is the evidence that he has for his faith? And maybe we shouldn't try to answer that with this question, the story, because the next story we're going to be reading really does, I think, uh, that question is really prominent. Yeah. So maybe we, let's move on to chapter 5. And um, Shimalin, I'm not Shimalin, Shalina, I'm sorry. Just read verses 1 to 9. We'll stop and discuss that because these we're moving to different parts and I think we ought to do one part at a time. Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, 
which in Hebrew is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up! Pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured, and he picked up his mat and walked. What made this man trust Jesus? A stranger, walking along on the Sabbath day, stops by this very difficult position, man with a very difficult condition, and he says to him, Do you want to be well? Seems like a very odd question, doesn't it? Who wouldn't in that condition want to be well? The man doesn't answer. He says, Sir, I have no one to put me in the water. And I think you know the background to this story. That it was believed that at certain times of the year the angels of God came down and troubled the waters and whoever could get in first uh, would be made whole. Think what that says about God, that he's competitive and it's a me first kind of thing and you get healed. This is totally contrary to the character of God. Uh, but that's what was believed. He says, Lord, there's no one to get me in in time, and while I'm trying to get there, others get there ahead of me. And Jesus looks at him and says, Get up, take up your mat, and walk. What makes the man believe Jesus? What inspires his faith? It doesn't say it, but it's almost like an attitude that the attitude's probably a wrong word, but that the man can sense that there's something different and he doesn't have to rely on the water, the water and the troubling and the it's the because we, we hear constantly that, you know, Christ had, had um a demeanor about him that attracted children, attracted people, that calmed people, that it was his demeanor. And, and my guess is that this man could sense that. Well, just you, you're right on it because the evidence suggests that this man didn't know who Jesus was. Yeah. No. Had no was, idea who he was. No. Right. Not even after the healing. Yeah. But that uh, was just. He's been out of touch for 38 years. <laughs> what does he know about what's going on? Nobody, nobody came to this place unless they had relatives there that they were trying to help get hold. Mm -hmm. and, he and here comes this stranger walking through, looking at probably at a lot of different people. And he comes to this man and he stops. And maybe he was watching him. Don't you suppose Jesus looked at these people with utter compassion? I mean, if he could have, he would have healed them all and emptied out that pool and robbed the people making money 
of their prey. Um, Interesting point. Uh, so I see Jesus as looking down with this incredible compassion, saying, would you like to be well? I think that would melt my heart right there. This man cares. And then the man says, you know, I have no one to help me get in the water, and while I'm trying, everyone gets there ahead of me. And can you see the look on Jesus' face, this, this penetrating look of, I know something better than this. Get up. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. It's worth a try, isn't it? And in that moment, I think Jesus engenders that trust. The man is willing to trust. And that's all Jesus needs to just spark that trust because of the evidence of his face, the evidence of his voice, the evidence of his demeanor, the evidence of his presence. Fascinating. And so then this would be another example where uh, in this man, it was enough for him that Jesus said so. Was it enough for the surrounding people? You know, that whole scenario, yes, one is healed. And, you know, some people probably go, well, look at He got healed. How come? You know. They yeah, you wonder home. You wonder how many people were grumbling around after that. Yeah, and, and yet it was like, if you believe, anybody can have that. You know, if we, if, because it's not just about being healed physically, it's about, you know, we had mentioned about being healed spiritually. Internally. Internally, which we all want. I can't speak for anybody else, which I know I need. <laughs> you, know. You, you know, it's interesting here. Jesus said to him, um, oh, go ahead. It, well, it's, it's just the, it, the thing that is really cool about when at people talk is you see the broader picture. Mm -hmm. And wow, that could have been really a dynamic scenario to bring a lot of people to him. A lot, every one of those people could have said, take me to Jesus, to yeah. whoever loved them. Instead of the pool. Instead of the pool. But notice verse 8 again. Jesus said to him, stand up, take up your mat, and walk. Verse 9, at once the man was made well. The healing had already gone out. The healing had already gone out and helped him have faith. You know, once our trust in God has been broken, or maybe never formed, we're powerless on our own to create that faith. Faith, that's why the Bible says faith is a gift. What engenders faith is marked evidence of trustworthiness. You can't trust someone who's not trustworthy. I mean, you, so a lot of people do, and, and they get badly burned. But as soon as they get burned, what happens to their trust? It's gone. So it seems to me that Jesus creates that trust. He creates 
that whole scenario and that, that we have nothing to boast about our faith because our faith is not our own. It is engendered by the trustworthiness of God and by the evidence of that. Now we can choose to resist faith, and a lot of people do. But the faith that we have is triggered by the trustworthiness of God. Okay, let's move now to the um, second part, and you can start the last part of verse 9, uh, Christian, and read to verse 18. Now it was a Sabbath on that day, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is a Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Ever read the Talmud? Particularly the Babylonian Talmud? It's disputation after disputation among the rabbis over laws that they have invented for keeping, mostly for keeping the Sabbath. I mean, I think the majority of laws in the Talmud of any one section is Sabbath keeping, over 400 laws. Um, laws like, uh, can you t take the bread out of the oven after sundown? Um, and if you take it out this way, is it breaking the Sabbath versus taking it out that way, is it breaking the Sabbath? Uh, and just on and on and on ad infinitum. And so what is this man is guilty of is he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. You weren't, laws said you weren't to carry your, your bed on the Sabbath day. Considered work, right? Yeah, <clears throat> picking up a load. And he said, well, now, wait a minute. The man who healed me said to me, take up your bed. And they're immediately, who is that man? <laughs> they know who he is. There's only one person that would do that. Um, Jesus, we're going to come to the man born blind in chapter 9. Jesus has this knack for healing people on Sabbath when it's not an emergency. None of Jesus' Sabbath healings are emergency cases. Nobody's at the point of death. The, that man who was paralyzed for 38 years could have waited until Sunday to be healed. Why didn't Jesus come on Sunday and heal him? I think about that when uh, I'm guilty of watering on Sabbath. I always wonder what my neighbors think of my Sabbath keeping. 
Yeah, and, you and still got to eat and drink, you know. And, and I, I'm, I'm, tempted, <laughs> I'm tempted to respond. Um, next time it rains on Sabbath, are you going to say that God is guilty of, rain, of watering on the Sabbath day? Um, and, and this goes back to my youth in a certain church in Arizona. They had a big, huge plate glass window, or several plate glass windows, overlooking a mountain that was significant to the area. And uh, it was desert outside. And the church had an automatic watering system that kind of created a little waterfall outside those big windows. And my parents and I would sit on that side. In the middle of the sermon, about the time it got very dry and boring in the sermon, there would be this this coming on of the water, and, and the water would cascade down, and and I would think about Isaiah 35, and the, you know, the water coming in the desert and it blossoming like a rose. And, and it was just very inspirational to me, and I loved it. Well, a dear saint in the church got very perturbed and told the pastor, you should not be watering on the Sabbath. And the pastor responded, that, you know, the plants can't live 24 hours without water. Well, then, water when they we're not in church. They used to do that. So they reset the timer so that the sprinklers, uh, the water system came on in the evening instead of during the day, which is probably better, but it spoiled my sermon illustration. I've heard and, many similar stories in all my study groups. Yeah. yeah. It's sad. This is, this is that kind of thinking. You shouldn't be carrying your mat on the Sabbath day. So, again, all of this is about heart condition. I mean, yes, things manifest physically that we see and do, but isn't it about the heart? Is, 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 is it a sin yeah, what, to carry your bed on what the is Sabbath sin, day? Right? <laughs> it really comes down to what is sin. And sin is not so much external as internal. You just clarify that when um, he talks about lust and talks about those other things. I'm sorry, I'm not when, hearing. When you. he talks about lust and when he talks about sinning of the heart, because he extends it, he kind of expands the law because they think that they're keeping the law. What happens externally is symptomatic of what's going on in the heart. And what's going on in the heart is far more serious, usually, than the symptoms that are manifesting. And it's the heart that God has to redeem. So Jesus not only has a knack for healing non-emergency cases on the Sabbath, but he has a knack for breaking their Sabbath laws deliberately. I mean, he could have told the man, get up and walk. And then cautioned him, don't go a Sabbath day's, don't go more than a Sabbath day's journey. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry if your home is clear across Jerusalem. By the way, the pool of Bethesda was just around the corner, practically from the Temple Mount area. Uh, And this is going to figure greatly in John 9. Look at that then. 
but um, let's move. Let's move to the last few verses. Oh, just real quick, verse fourteen. Something just so precious, where Jesus says to him, "See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something." Oh, I love you. I love your translation because it captures the Greek. Often, my translation says, "Do not sin." Anymore, and it's it, that is not what the Greek says. It says, "Do not go on practicing sin. Do not continuously do this anymore." So, was he bringing up a particular? I'm sorry. Well, he's suggesting, I think, that the man became a paralytic because of his sins, because of what he was doing. That it was a natural result of his sinfulness. And so Jesus is saying, change, you know, it's like a doctor telling a patient who's smoking, who has lung cancer, you've got to stop smoking. You want to get well, you want to stay well, you've got to stop smoking. Stop smoking. Yeah. It's, it's the same kind of thing. Geneva says, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Yeah. Yeah. Now, see, that makes sense when you say it like that. It's like it's not the way it was with my third and fourth grade teacher, who, uh, back in the day, teachers were allowed to spank children. That wouldn't be allowed now, but they were allowed to spank children. And there was the principal's office was between third and fourth grade classroom and the seventh and eighth grade classroom, and it was close to the third and fourth grade classroom. There was actually a hall between the principal's office and the 7th and 8th grade classroom. So we were right there by that principal's office. That's where all the spankings took place. Oh, it's so funny you mentioned that. My 5th grade teacher had this stick called the teacher's pet. (laughs) That was in Fresno Adventist Academy. (laughs) (laughs) Teacher's pet. Well, they used a ping pong paddle. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The Board of Education applied the to the Board of Education applied to the seat of learning. Oh, yes. What were we thinking? Anyway, oh. there was a, a one of the students, I don't know what he got caught doing, but he got caught doing something. He was the nicest kid. He hardly ever messed up. And uh, my third and fourth grade teacher took him into the 